Morning, everybody. Our scripture passage this morning is from Romans chapter 3, Romans in the New Testament, verses 21 through 26. The Apostle Paul is writing, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in him. Let's pray for a moment. Lord God, we've gathered here this morning on this cool early fall morning, and we ask that as we begin the rhythm of our week that you'd receive our worship. We need to be in regular communion with you. We need to be in, regular, in the regular company of others who are learning about you, finding you, and following you. And so we ask that as we worship you, as we look into your word, as we think about what Christian faith means and what grace means in our lives, that you will increase our knowledge and understanding, that you will increase our ability to stand in your grace with confidence, that you will also increase our ability to go out and to give grace to others from a deeper well of knowledge and experience. Thank you for being a God who reaches out to find people where we are, a God who uh, may be at times angry over the injustices of the world and the evil of the world, at the same time loving people where they are at. Help us understand you better and the ways that you operate. This morning we continue to lift up some of our friends here from North River who are struggling with various illnesses. Think of Tom and Jean and Ginny and John and Peter. And we ask that you'll grant them all strength we ask that you will fight for them on the days when they are weak and it seems like the treatments are overwhelming. We pray for those this morning who may be dealing with a, a cancer or an illness quietly and don't want the whole world to know, but we ask that you would give them the courage to face each challenge, the courage to go through the next round of whether it's chemo or radiation or some other test or probe Grant each one the knowledge that we, while we live in a broken world, we have a God who intervenes and we have a God who sometimes showers us with unexpected grace and even healing. And so we ask that you would pour out your healing and your mercy into the, into the lives of all these that we prayed for and those who are on our minds and our hearts silently right now. Lord, thank you for the opportunities that we have to live in this world, to enjoy freedom, to represent you, to love life. And I pray that you will use all that we do and learn together to help us make the most of life and to become the people you want us to be. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Just thinking about uh, how we're starting off a new series today. We're calling this Changed by Grace. And I wanted to start off with something that illustrates a little bit of where we're headed. So please watch this short video. All right, real quick. Here are four unrelated stories, all with a common bond. First, let's go back to November 20th, 1982. For the 85th time, Cal and Stanford are involved in a heated contest. After a wild game, Stanford, led by young John Elway, takes the lead with just four seconds left. The Stanford fans and band are already celebrating, and why shouldn't they? The game is over. One final play begins as Stanford kicks short to Cal. A mad scramble ensues. Laterals follow near tackles, then a blind over-the-shoulder lateral. A mad race to the end zone. Down goes the Stanford trombonist as the touchdown is scored. The unthinkable happens, and Cal wins. As it turns out, it wasn't over. How about this one? Meet the Lilies, Russell and Terry. It's 2001. Their 10-year marriage has been a constant source of frustration. A vicious cycle of selfishness, fighting, and isolation has left them both exhausted, angry, and done. Never mind the vows. Never mind the two young boys. This one is beyond hope. This marriage is over. Following their divorce, Russell becomes a follower of Christ, and Terry begins to notice the transformation taking place in Russell. Hardened hearts soften. The relationship begins to heal. Forgiveness is sought and granted. In 2007, they remarry. The one that became two is now one again. Then there's Raylene Kuferschmidt. It's January 2008. Ray suffers a cerebral hemorrhage. Declaring her brain dead, the doctors remove her breathing tubes. Knowing that it's over, the hospital releases Ray to her family so she can be taken home to die comfortably. Meanwhile, Ray's family plans her funeral. But someone forgot to tell Ray that it was over. At home, Ray suddenly wakes up. She's checked again by her doctors, who cannot believe that she's still alive, much less alert and healthy. Funeral plans have now turned into vacation plans for Ray and her family. Logically devoid of hope, legally divorced, literally dead, everyone thought it was over. It's not the first time. Flashback almost 2,000 years. A man claiming to be the long-anticipated Messiah is unfairly accused. Offered up to the lying crowds by a Roman official, the supposed Savior is flogged, mocked, tortured, and beaten. He is nailed to a tree and crucified. He dies and is buried. Hopes that he is the Messiah fade away. It is finished. Friends scatter. Disciples hide. Evil celebrates, and for three days, it is over. But on the third day, there's an empty grave. Evil has lost its victory. Death has lost its sting. Suddenly, miraculously, the only thing that is now over is hopelessness. Four stories, one message. It's not over, even when it's over. On Twitter, which is now known as X, St. John Fisher Catholic High School in Peterborough, England, posted a picture of a book that had been returned to their library after being overdue for 32 years. An unnamed student had checked out the book some uh, 32 years ago and was returning it anonymously. 
Attached to the book was a very simple note that said, Sorry, just 32 years overdue. Call it Catholic guilt. (laughs) Now, Rosie Rowe was the chief administrator who opened that package with that long-lost book. She was disappointed that the guilty party chose to remain anonymous, that there was no name attached to that note. She said when she was interviewed about this, It was a real surprise when I opened it and saw what was inside. I thought it's a real shame that they didn't leave a name because I was at the school at that time and I wonder if I knew them. Now, there are a couple other interesting details that I found in reading about this story that was published by UPI's Odd News back in 2021. The first is the title of the book that was returned. The title was Manners Make a Difference. (laughs) So either this is somebody who really wanted to excel in manners or somebody who who completely missed the irony of taking out this book of manners and then not having the manners to return the book for 32 years. Uh, I just kind of got the humor in that. But the second detail was that the library staff calculated what the fine would be after all that time. It was the equivalent of $1,100. When the school posted that story on Twitter, it also ended that tweet with these words, all is forgiven. Now, the reason for starting with that story is that it connects with something that most of us experience at one time or another. The problem of getting rid of objective guilt for sins and things done wrong that stay deep within the human conscience. Does an anonymous letter with a book returned 32 years years later take care of that? Does a note on Twitter saying all is forgiven remove that sense of guilt from another person's life? What if the person who returned the book never saw the tweet or never learned that all is forgiven? Well, are they forgiven if they never got the message? And why did that library administrator publish that specific tweet? Did the library administrator have an insight into the way that guilt has this tendency to plague the minds and hearts of people for decades? Well, that story leads into our topic today, which is why we need grace. This is the way I wanted to start off this series that we're calling Changed by Grace. So our question today is, who needs grace and why do we need it? Last Sunday, Pastor Todd took the baton for the final session in our All About Love series. I hope you got as much out of that 12-week focus on love, uh, the Bible's uh, take on love anyway, as I did. I I got a lot out of that. I learned new things that I'd never taught before and never discovered before. This morning, we're launching our our first fall series, and it's called Changed by Grace. We're going to look at a few instructional or doctrinal explanations about grace, and also about how grace works by diving into a handful of stories from the Gospels about people whose lives were radically changed by an encounter with Jesus or with God's grace. What I hope that we will all see from this series is how encounters with the grace of God in Jesus changes the trajectory of our lives. So here we go. I hope you're ready to dive in. Good morning, my North River friends. I'm glad to see that you guys made it here at 9 o'clock and that you're here with us. I'm really glad to see that there are a number of you who are joining us online, and I want to welcome all of you too. You are a part of this experience. I hope that you will make it Uh, something that is important to you, that you can clear away the distractions of home or wherever you are are watching from, and that you'll gather with us every week this fall. Uh, 
I'm glad that some have found our live stream, and perhaps there are some of you who are checking us out for the first time today. I hope that you'll ask questions and that you'll take the next step. You, you, you can always come on a Sunday, or you can send a, a question or a comment to me. My email is paul at northriverchurch.org, or you can click on the connection card that you can find on, on your online vehicle, and if you click that button, you can fill that out, and we will get back in touch with you. We'd love to begin the conversation with you. Again, our question this morning is, who needs grace and why do we need it? I'd like to answer that question through a lot of the the focus of this morning's message. Why do we need grace? This morning I'm going to follow the lead of the late Dr. Tim Keller by focusing on three terms that are found here in Romans chapter 3 that we all need to understand in order to fully apprehend the meaning of grace, at least in the way that the Apostle Paul was explaining it to us here in Romans chapter 3. Now those three terms are redemption, sacrifice of atonement, and justified. We're going to talk about those three. So here's the first point that I want to bring home to us. All human beings need redemption. All, everybody. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The concept of redemption is something that is older than the Bible itself. The Bible didn't invent this. The concept of redemption is a very positive action because it brings people out of a situation where it may look like there's no way out or that it's over, if we take the language from that video clip, and it brings them to a radically better life through the work of a redeemer. What were the situations that caused the need for a redeemer in the ancient world? Well, there were a number of them. Uh, It might be that somebody was taken as a prisoner of war and then held captive in exchange for, in the hope of uh, exchanging a ransom. Uh, In other words, money would be exchanged and the person would be freed. Sometimes people were uh, in need of redemption because of piracy or banditry where people were captured and often returned for a ransom. This was often something in the ancient world that plagued wealthy people. They would be taken captive by a pirate group and and held for all that that pirate could get. Or there was a very active slave trade in the ancient world. People who were bought and sold as slaves, and sometimes that carried on for generations, even for their children and their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And it was an awful reality, but it was a large reality in the ancient world. And then there was also uh, the need for redemption from debt. Some people were trapped by a mountain of debt and they couldn't pay it back. And so they they would become indentured servants for a period of time. And they would serve a literal master until there was an agreed upon period of time where that debt was finally paid off. Now it's hard to find a clear consensus on this. But it is estimated that around 300 BC, in other words 300 years before the time of Jesus, that there were as many as 10 times as many slaves as there were free people in ancient Greece and Rome. You get how widespread this practice was. Redemption came into play when a ransom price was met and when a person was redeemed by a family member or a benefactor who bought that person's freedom. Take a closer look at the kind of slavery or captivity that went into this need for redemption. 
the first was the idea of getting yourself freed from a situation like that, especially if you were a slave. Now, it was possible to be redeemed from that reality, but it was rare. Ancient document, documents talk about emancipation, but freedom from enslaved conditions was somewhat possible, but extremely rare in the ancient world. Such freedom would involve not only paying back a debt if owed, but also paying the perceived value of the slave to the owner. So redemption from slavery was expensive, possible, yet rare. There was also another factor that made it hard for people to get out of the situations that called for redemption. A recent scholar, Orlando Patterson, was examining slavery in the ancient world, and he talked about the concept of social death. It's hard to neatly summarize slavery for all periods in the ancient world for there are different forms of slavery with varying degrees of, of freedom. However, Patterson presents this theory of social death as an overwhelming reality for those who entered enslavement. It meant that their identity, apart from loyalty to the owner and duties assigned by the owner, was immediately lost. And so people were, were stripped away from contact with their family members, which also meant it was very hard for a family member to step in and redeem them and to act on their behalf. So you get how loaded this concept of, of redemption was. Well, this is where it starts to hit home for us because the Bible ties this concept of redemption to being freed from the slavery to sin that we all experience. The New Testament writers likened human slavery to the hold that sin places on our lives. Here in Romans chapter 3, we are told that we all have sinned. This doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can possibly be, but it does mean that we have crossed the boundaries deliberately and we have fallen short of God's expectations. And even our best efforts to satisfy God fall short. This is a universal problem. And because much of our sin is deliberate, we're, where we act as if we know better than God, we are at odds with God. In that sense, when we sin against God, we incur a tremendous debt. We are taken hold by a ruthless master, and we undergo a kind of social death as well, by which we are not free to simply throw off sin's hold on us. And our whole identity becomes wrapped up in that status of enslavement. And because of this debt, we find it difficult to throw off our guilt. Anybody here who didn't grow up with any sense of guilt? You know, I know that about two-thirds of our congregation are former Roman Catholics, and most of my Catholic friends say, we grew up obsessed with guilt. Well, I grew up Baptists, and Baptists were equally overwhelmed by this sense of guilt. It was everywhere. People go to great lengths in life to either deny or purge this sense of guilt. Like the guy who sent that anonymous letter with the book 32 years later. I'm feeling guilty, so I'm sending this back anonymously. I hope that this makes everything better. Tim Keller tells the story of Hollywood director Sidney Pollack, who'd, many, who'd made many great films and had won an Oscar, but he still kept working when he was near the end of his life and very, very sick. And one of his friends asked, why do you keep going? Why do you keep making films? This is what he said. Every time I make a picture, I feel that I have earned my stay for another year or so. In other words, he felt like he had to justify his existence on this earth. 
In the movie Chariots of Fire, Olympic sprinter Harold Abrams was asked why he was working so hard for athletic glory. And Abrams responded, he was a 100-yard dash competitor, he responded, when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Imagine that. His, his whole sense of self-worth was wrapped up in how you perform in a 10-second race. And if you won or you came out near the front, then, then maybe there's a reason for him to continue to exist on this earth. But if he didn't, he'd beat himself up and feel that he was worthless. Keller points out that when we put a job or a relationship or a task as our justification for existence, whatever that is, sooner or later becomes our slave master. We need to be redeemed. We need to feel like we excel at something in order to justify our existence or we're the best that we can possibly be in order to pay back for all the wrongs that we've done and how guilty we feel deep within. Unless we are redeemed, whatever that is that is our slave master runs us and ruins us. But the good news of the gospel is that there is a redeemer who has paid the price for our freedom. The redemption he offers liberates us from sin's hold, replaces social death with new life in Christ, and establishes us forevermore in the family of God. So the first thought here, the first discovery is all human beings need redemption. There's nobody who doesn't. And sometimes part of the gospel is making people aware of that. Here's the second move, though. God's redemption involves atonement. So in verse 25, the apostle Paul writes, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Atonement at its roots carries the idea of making something right after damage has been done. So that raises the question of what needs to be made right and what damage has been done, which leads us back to Romans 3.23. Well, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have defied God in some way. This damage is at the root of an interpretive debate over the meaning of atonement. The New International Version that I'm quoting from in the, in the part of the Bible that I read for you uses the phrase sacrifice of atonement to translate one word from the Greek New Testament. So sometimes there's not an easy carryover from one language to another word by word and there's a, a phrase that can better describe that. But there's also a theological debate behind this particular Greek word. Now, the Greek word is hilasterion. You don't need to know that. But it's, it's the word that in the older versions of the Bible was translated as propitiation with the idea that um, we need pity from God and somehow that something needs to assuage the wrath or the anger of God. A lot of people don't like to talk about that. In this context... We need to realize that God is angry over sin and injustice and evil in the world. It's not that God is angry toward people or that he just indiscriminately doesn't like some people or even hates some people. But God is always opposed to whatever is evil and whatever is unjust in the world. So propitiation carries the idea of turning aside that wrath of God. Now, some people actually hate that word and the concept behind it. In today's world, this is a very unpopular Christian doctrine. And when people oppose this, they, they say, well, I can't believe in a God who gets angry over sin, that he would send his own son to pay for it. What a barbarous idea. So 
it takes some wrestling for us to understand what's behind this, and we need some, need some help in getting to the bottom of this and truly understanding it. This is where Dr. Tim Keller comes in. He died a few months ago, but his sermons have been turned into podcasts that are free on his Gospel in Life site. In an episode called Bought Out of Slavery that I listened to this week, he unpacks this for us. He says, in order for us to get our hands around this, there are four background concepts that we need to understand. Here's the first one. Great love makes you capable of great anger. Great love makes you capable of great anger. In other words, it makes no sense to say, I want a loving God, I don't want an angry God. When you really love someone, you can get very angry with them if they are destroying their lives. And you will get angry at anything that is destroying the life of someone you love. Some of you who are parents are nodding. You say, yeah, I've been there. I know what that's like. Some of you who have tried to walk with friends who have very destructive habits know that you hate what they're involved in. You don't hate the person, but you hate what's destroying them. Have you ever been angry at a friend who was destroying their life with stupid things? We realize at this point that if we didn't really love the person, we wouldn't be angry. We'd be indifferent. We'd just walk away and say, I don't care. This is when we realize that anger isn't the opposite of love. Indifference is the opposite of love. It's to not care at all. In fact, we don't want a God who is indifferent about evil or injustice when we really think about it. We want a God who is committed to overturning the evil in the world and a God who, in the end, will make things right. That's what Revelation is all about at the end of the Bible. So the first thought is, great love makes you capable of great anger, and so it is with God. Here's the second. God is a judge, and his anger is a settled opposition to evil. When we think about the end, we want a God who is opposed to all evil. When we think of justice in the world today, we want a God who stands up for doing what is right, and we hope that our justice system in some way mirrors that. We don't want a God who doesn't care and just says, oh, well, let it go. Especially when you're the one who's been wronged. The third thought is, forgiveness is always a form of suffering. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in one of his books, that it always costs to forgive. When you forgive someone, it is costly. We talked about this a couple of Sundays ago. Because you bear the cost of that forgiveness. You recognize that somebody hurt you, somebody damaged you, somebody destroyed your reputation. What would feel good would be to get even and to do the same thing to them. But you realize when you pay it back in that way, evil wins because now it's entered your heart too. For that reason, you always bear the cost of someone else's harmful act when you choose to forgive. Forgiving isn't just letting them go. Forgiving is saying, I will bear the loss and I won't hold it against you any longer. But it always costs you. When God forgives us, he chooses to bear the cost. That is why it was necessary for Jesus to die for our sins. God was bearing the cost. Look at what it says in verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, the fourth thought is that the Trinity changes how we understand all this. 
Well, verse 25 says God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. The Trinity is essential to helping us understand that God did this and that God suffered too because God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one. They are inseparable. They manifest themselves and and reveal themselves to us in three distinct persons, but they are somehow mysteriously one God. And the mystery of the Trinity helps me in that regard because God wasn't doing something to Jesus who was a distinctly separate being, but Jesus who shares the very nature and essence of God, two different personalities, but one God at the core. God goes to the cross in the person of Jesus. John Stott, the the Anglican theologian, points out that sin is always us substituting ourselves for God. When we sin, we basically say, uh, I can ignore God's commands, or I know better. I know that God's law says I shouldn't do these things, but I know better. I can get away with this, and it's really not going to harm me or harm anybody else. And when we do that, we usurp God's place. We basically say, I know better than God. And we all do this at some point. We say, it's not a big deal. It doesn't really matter. Then in redemption... God substitutes himself for us. You see the the turn there? We try to take God's role and substitute ourselves for God, but God, in bringing us back to a place of redemption, substitutes himself for us. The Trinity is not just three guys up there who happen to like each other. The Trinity means that God is one, yet reveals himself in three distinct persons. So God goes to the cross in our place in the person of Jesus Christ, and God himself suffered on our behalf. He bore the cost in Jesus. Now, putting these four things together, we realize that the propitiation of the wrath of God by the blood of Christ is what redeems us. Any God who is not angry over injustice would not be worth worshiping because he's not a God who's going to hold everyone accountable at the end or fix the world at the end. He cares about every wrong done to you and about every wrong we do to others. And in the end, he is determined to make things right. And he justifies now those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is where the third wave comes in. Justification is more than simple forgiveness. We pick this up partway through verse 25 and into verse 26. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, in other words, He puts up with some of what's wrong in this world rather than judging instantly. In his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is where the beauty of God's justifying work shows up. When we think about justification, we're tempted to only think about God's mercy and forgiveness. But justification is more than simple forgiveness. Forgiveness is wonderful, but think about it. It is negative as a concept. Forgiveness says, I won't hold you responsible. I forgive you. I'll bear the cost. That is a negative in a sense. Justification says something more. It offers something more, something that is positive in nature. When God justifies a person who comes to faith, comes to Jesus in faith, he does two things. 
He renders a verdict which is positive that says, you are innocent in my sight. More than just, I won't hold you responsible. You are now innocent in my sight. And he offers a status. You are welcome in my presence. You have access to God. You have access to intimacy with the Father. So here's how all this works together. When we put our faith in Jesus... He redeems us from our sin and buys us out of our slavery. When he propitiates on our behalf, he satisfies God's rightful wrath over wrongs we have done to others, to ourselves, and to God himself. And thus he atones for us. And when the Father justifies all who trust in Jesus, we are given unmerited, undeserved access to God the Father. That's what he wants. He wants to have a free-flowing access with you where the guilt is out of the way, no longer holding you back. This is what grace is. This is what grace does. This is why we need grace. By grace, we are redeemed from our slavery to sinful patterns. By grace, our offense toward God is removed as God and Jesus bears the cross. By grace, we are given an undeserved verdict of innocence and welcomed into the presence and fellowship of God. We all need this grace because apart from it, we stand before God as those who pretend that God isn't there, that our sin against him doesn't matter, or that we know better than God. So here's the big idea for this morning. Grace is God's way of redeeming our lives, paying the cost for forgiveness, and offering us an access we could never deserve. I'd like to tell you a grace story. Lee Strobel tells the story of Stephanie in his book, The Case for, Christ, or Case for Grace. Stephanie was born in Korea in the early 1950s, the daughter of a Korean mom and an African-American dad who was serving in the U.S. Army during the Korean conflict. They weren't married, and when U.S. participation ended, Stephanie and her mother were left behind in South Korea. Stephanie lived with her mom and her mother's parents, who bore community shame because biracial children in that part of the world were just not accepted. When she was about four or five years old, Stephanie's mother was presented with a marriage offer. It was an arranged marriage. But the offer forced the mom to choose between her daughter and this potential new husband. To make a long story short, Stephanie was abandoned, a child nobody wanted and nobody came for. In her struggle for survival, Stephanie learned fast. She was on her own at the age of five, learned to steal food. She found some other kids who were homeless and they would sneak into villages or crawl into the fields at night and they'd steal a farmer's melon until the farmer or the shop owners would catch them. Then she fell in with another group of homeless street kids who took her in. And after a few days, she realized that this was a gang. And as a young girl, she was abused in every way imaginable. But she had nowhere else to turn. It was during that time that Stephanie was first called a name that she didn't understand. In that culture, they called her a tuki, which was a Korean insult that led her to believe that she was dirty, unlovable, and worthless. There were times she hated herself, and she wanted to die. She became hyper-vigilant about potential abuse, yet she longed for her, for her own people. One night, an older woman in one of the villages left her kitchen door unlocked, She knew it was cold, and she knew that Stephanie would come in. And so Stephanie walked into that kitchen and sat on the dirt floor and huddled against the stove just so that she could be warm at night. 
And then in the morning, the woman told her, little girl, there are all kinds of people around here who want to hurt you, but it's important that you live. You must live. And that became seared into her memory. After about two or three years of living this way, if you can imagine that, Miss Erickson, a Lutheran missionary, found her sleeping on a garbage bin and was kind to her. Miss Erickson was about to turn away from her, just another street urchin that she saw, and she heard a voice audibly in her head that simply said, she's mine. And she instantly knew it was God. And so she took her to her clinic and she paid for Stephanie's medical uh, needs to help get her on the pathway to, to start to get, to get cleaned up. And then she took Stephanie to a World Vision orphanage, and there were hundreds of abandoned children who were there. Stephanie was given a part-time role in caring for infants and toddlers. Now she's only seven or eight years old, and for the first time in her life, she received love from these toddlers who would reach out to her with with their trusting, open arms, and she hadn't known this kind of radical acceptance before. But then she noticed as she was caring for those little toddlers and infants that every once in a while, one of them would disappear. And she'd wonder, where did they go? And she would ask, and they'd say, oh, she went to America. Well, what had happened was she was adopted by somebody, and she began to think that America was this strange place that was just kind of zapping children out of Korea. She didn't understand the adoption process. And then one day, an American couple came looking to adopt a toddler And they held babies, and as they did, they noticed this sad-faced, now nearly nine-year-old Stephanie. Even though she'd been at the orphanage for nearly two years, she was covered with lice, with scars, her stomach was plagued with worms, she had a lazy eye that flopped around in its socket, and she weighed only a little more than 30 pounds at the age of nine. And this tall American man reached out for her and hugged her and held her, and he put his hand on her face. Stephanie remembers this as her first encounter with grace. This aspiring father bringing unconditional acceptance to a girl who had nothing to offer. No accolades, no accomplishments, just herself as she was with her vulnerabilities and her scars. And he warmly held her face. All of a sudden, Stephanie didn't know what to do with this warmth, this tenderness, And suddenly she yanked the man's hand off her face and she yelled at him and she spit at him. When Lee Strobel heard her say this, he instantly thought back to all of the times when he had pushed God out of his life in his early years. Even after pleading with God to heal his newborn daughter from a life-threatening disease, he chalked it up afterward to, oh, it's just the medical miracles of our day. And he continued in his atheism. This makes us wonder how many times we have spurned God's kindness Toward us. To everyone's surprise, this couple continued to pursue Stephanie. They adopted her and brought her to the United States, where she had her own room for the first time in her life and a permanent home for the first time. Their names were David and Judy Merwin. They were retired missionaries who wanted another child. But based on her tough experiences so far, this little girl didn't understand this. She thought that she was going there to be their servant. That's what often happened in Korea, of course, at that time. She thought that she would have to work off the generosity they had showed her and pay them back over time. The Merwins went there hoping to adopt a little boy that they were going to name Stephen. So when they brought her back to the United States, they were the ones who gave her the name Stephanie. 
And she was amazed when she got there at the clothing that they bought for her and the gifts that they gave for her and how they tucked her in at night and read stories and prayed over her. And she didn't understand all of this. She thought it was odd that they hadn't put her to work yet. Several months later, she met a new friend and another little girl who lived by, nearby, and she told this girl that it seemed strange that this couple loved her in this way, gave her all these gifts, and they hadn't asked her to work as their servant yet. She thought it was really strange. And her friend looked at her in surprise and said, don't you realize that you're their new daughter? And she said, no, no way, that, that doesn't happen. She said, yes, you're their daughter. And all of a sudden, it came home to Stephanie. And she ran home, and she burst in the door. and She saw her new mom and dad there, and she shouted, I'm your daughter, I'm your daughter, I'm your daughter. Lee tells that story, and then he says, this is grace. This is what it means to be showered by the grace of God when we begin to realize that God has never, ever wanted to lock us in our past or, or trap us in our guilt or only see us through our sins, but he has always been working sacrificially on our part to bring us to that place where we can say, I'm your son, I'm your son, I'm your daughter, I'm your daughter, I'm welcome in the presence of God. This is grace, and we all need the grace that God delivers through Jesus. This is the grace that we feel when you realize that the God you've been pushing away refuses to give up on you, welcomes you with open arms, cleans you up, scrubs off the dirt, absorbs your resistance, forgives your past, gives you a new name and a new start, and offers you access to his heart and then claims you as his own. This is grace. This is the grace the whole world needs. This is what we represent. This is what fuels us. For the past several years, Stephanie has worked as a social worker in the Pacific Northwest. She specializes in helping young women with tough starts and troubled lives to rebuild from the ruins. When Lee asked her how she thinks about her past now, she responded with a long, thoughtful pause. And then she said, I wouldn't change any of my past because it's the process God used to help me appreciate his incredible grace and every part of it is useful in the work that I do now. Grace is God's way of redeeming our lives, paying the cost of forgiveness, and offering us access we could never, ever deserve. I wonder if you would pray a closing prayer with me. It's going to show up right now. Let's do this out loud, if you're willing. Dear God, thank you for never giving up. Even when I push you away, Forgive me for resisting your ways. Forgive me for trying to take your place. You bore the cost to redeem me. I will resist you no longer. I need this unmerited, undeserved grace. Thank you for allowing me to experience your grace in Jesus. I receive it as your gift in Jesus' name. Amen.